The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So Ruth, she, went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And know, and now, it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she had come to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, my friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here, and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me, 
that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witness this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. The word of the Lord. Good morning. It's uh, always a delight and a privilege to be with you, my brothers and sisters, and uh, to worship Jesus together, hear from his word. Let's pray, because I need help to teach this, um, and I think we all need help to hear what it has to say. So let's, let's go to the Lord and ask for his help. Our Father, we come before you and just uh, sit for a moment in silence. We remember that you know us better than we know ourselves. Uh, you know our posture towards you, our inclination towards your word, our connection or not with Jesus Christ. And Lord, we just we pray together that your Holy Spirit would be with us and that the word spoken, this would be far more than just a, a pretty speech that I could give, but that the Holy Spirit would take this word and uh, inject it into our hearts. Lord, open our minds, our ears, our hearts to hear what you would be saying to us through your word, Lord, and draw us near, remind us, or maybe show us for the first time how you and you alone are the great redeemer. So speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So if you're new with us, uh, we're continuing through or with our study through the book of Ruth, and we've come to the third episode. And in my study, I'm realizing, both from commentators and in the text, everybody agrees this is a beautiful story. It's a marvelous story. I hope you've read it through. But also reading commentators, listening to some sermons, especially when it comes to this chapter, uh, maybe you're wondering what everybody else seems to be wondering, and that is this. What on earth are we supposed to do with this passage? How are you supposed to apply this passage to your life? So let me give you a bad example. You know, I was thinking of a, of a sermon series, something like how to use your feminine initiative to acquire the Boaz God has for you. Um, you think that'll sell? Uh, step one, step one, always follow the advice, no matter how risky it seems, of the mother of your dead first husband. Uh, step two, well, it would only get worse from there, so I'll, I'll stop. 
Um, but that's not going to work. That, that can't be it, right? And I was just remembering one principle that's really helpful for interpreting the Old Testament, because let's just stop right here. The Old Testament is the inspired word of God. All scripture is inspired by God. Read 2 Timothy 3. It's profitable for teaching, for truth, for training, and all the rest, so that we can live the life God calls us to live. It's inspired by God. But that doesn't mean it's easy to interpret. And in fact, if we don't interpret it in a healthy way, it can't and won't have the effect it's meant to have in our lives. So one clue, one principle that's helpful for interpreting the Old Testament is to remember both differences and similarities between the Old and New Covenants. We call it the Old Testament because it's a first covenant between God and his people, the Mosaic Covenant. And we call the New Testament the New Testament because there's a new covenant with God's people through Jesus Christ and what he's done. And so, of course, there are massive themes and truths that undergird both covenants. So we want to know the similarities, but there's also very plainly some differences. And I just want to emphasize one difference that's essential for understanding this story. One difference in the Old Testament is that it emphasizes a family legacy in the promised land. It emphasizes a family legacy in the promised land. When God calls Abraham to himself, he says, go to the land I will show you. And I'm going to give this to you and your descendants after you. Of course, we know Abraham's descendants grew to be the people of Israel. And when God saved the nation of Israel from slavery in Egypt, he brought them where? To the land. Moreover, as they were in the land, God assigned portions of the land to the 12 tribes and to the clans within those tribes. And this land was part of their legacy as the people of God. It was their part of their tie to being God's chosen people that he has made a place for them. Their family name was tied to that family land. It was part of their covenant blessings with God. Moreover, worship itself was tied to the land, wasn't it? Worship itself is tied to the land. There's a tabernacle in a place with Levitical priests, and you would go there to offer your sacrifices. And later on in Israel's history, there's, the temple is in the capital city of the promised land. If you wanted to know and worship the living God, you joined the nation of Israel in that land. So it was tied, the legacy, to the land. In fact, then, and this is the context for this book, the great tragedy... With this as an emphasis, the great tragedy would be for your family line to go extinct or to lose the inheritance of your family land because of that emphasis and that principle. It'd be a great tragedy. So you think, well, why are you going into this again? Well, the reality of land and legacy in the land is part of why God provided the role of Redeemer. God provided the role of redeemer, and understanding that role is essential to understanding this book we're reading. Who's the redeemer? The redeemer is someone prominent in your family clan who, were, when you were in trouble, he could rescue you at cost to himself. So if you lost your land to debt, the redeemer could come and buy back that land and restore it to you. If you lost yourself into slavery due to trouble, the Redeemer would buy you back, restore you to freedom. If you lost your family line even, 
The Redeemer could take the widowed wife of his relative as his wife and give her children so that that relative's name would continue on their land of promise. That's a serious version of redemption right there. To to keep the family legacy alive in this land that God has promised. So the the name would continue on the land. Well, I hope you can see there are some differences between the old and new covenant, right? We're in the new covenant now, amen, right? Our covenant with God is made through Jesus Christ and what he's done, which means the church of Jesus Christ is not a nation in one land. Part of what we're celebrating tonight, no, The church of Jesus Christ is growing and spreading in the midst of all nations through all the lands of the earth. Second, for for the church, the worship isn't tied to the land. It's not tied to the land. The the key to worship in today's today's age is is not going to a specific temple. And we, we love this building and we're happy to meet here, but this building does not make this church. It's wonderfully convenient. It doesn't make a church. No, the key now in this age is meeting with other Christians because we are the temple. We together are the temple. That's why the ecclesia, the gathering of God's people. As we trust Christ according to his word and are filled with his Holy Spirit, our worship's not tied to the land. It's tied to one another. Okay? Number three, our heritage then is not ultimately land here or biological lineage in this world. No, our heritage is the new earth. Jesus will bring in his return. That's our land. And our heritage is the people who bear his name through faith in him. You see the differences? Really important differences. Okay. So that helps us understand this passage, right? One one reason it's hard to apply is because Ruth's context is so different from our context. So different. But there is an under theme here that undergirds not not just this passage, but the entire Bible. Ultimately, I am convinced that God gave his people the role of redeemer in order to fundamentally teach them about their relationship with him. When they're slaves, when they're lost, when they're broken, when they're hopeless, when, when all seems destroyed, there's one who will buy them back at cost to himself. Traces three miles through the Bible. This is the way God speaks about the Exodus. Look at Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 and following. Remember, Israel here in context, they're enslaved in Egypt. They need a redeemer. Look at Exodus 6, 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will, what? Redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Verse seven, I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land. Do you see how God himself is their redeemer? This theme continues throughout scripture. Hundreds of years later in Isaiah, I'll mention one reference. Look at Isaiah 54, five. Oh, it sounds a lot like the story of Ruth. 
for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your what? Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Do you see how God's framing his relationship with his people? Creator of all things, the one true living only God who buys his people to himself. And, and the, the context for understanding that relationship is even marriage. He's the husband who buys his people to himself as a beloved bride. So think of the of similarities between the Old and New Covenant. Let me ask you this, key question as we come to this text. Does God still redeem people to himself? Another more personal question. Do you think you need a redeemer? Any brokenness, lostness in your life? A debt you owe, you cannot pay. Do you need a redeemer? Moreover, if you came to, the, to God as and, and asked him to be your redeemer, would he receive you? What if you've screwed it up too many times? What if, you, you know, you're looking at your life and you're thinking, I'm, I'm, hardly, I'm hardly living this out right now. Would he receive you? Those are important questions for our text. With, with all that in mind, similarities and differences old, between the Old and New Covenant, let's have a look at episode three here of our study. I got to give you just a little bit of background. You remember in chapter one, Naomi, her name meant pleasant. She renamed herself Mara. What does Mara mean? Bitter. She named herself bitter because the time, circumstances, and regret of her life was so bitter, so awful. So during a famine, her family had left Israel to go to the pagan land of Moab, chasing food. Instead of thriving, Naomi's husband and two sons died, leaving her destitute. It was bitter. Amazingly, though, even in that context, God was still redeeming. Her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the Moabitess of all people, that's the way they'd think back then, she's converted, devoted herself to Naomi's God and to Naomi herself. Devoted herself to care for Naomi. Amazing. God redeems. Chapter 2, Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem in desperate need of favor. They're hopeless. They're destitute. They have no way to provide for themselves. They cannot deliver themselves. And they find, if you were with us last week, they find more favor than they ever dreamed possible in the generosity of this worthy man named Boaz, who just so happens, right, to be a redeemer to them. Well, now we hit chapter 3. It's been a couple of months and we see at the beginning of this chapter, Naomi, in an effort to provide for Ruth, directs Ruth to take this massive risk to somehow propose to Boaz that he marry her and be her redeemer. We'll see that in verses 1 to 9, this massive risk. So really, this third episode, as I'm framing it for you, has two basic parts. Number one, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 9, we see Ruth's risky request. Then number two, Chapter 3, verse 10, all the way to chapter 4, verse 10. What is it about? Did you see? What is it about? Ruth takes this risk, and we're all wondering as readers, what's going to happen? And here's the question the narrator's dealing with. How will Boaz respond to Ruth's risky request that he redeem her? How will he respond? And so chapter 3, verse 10, all the way to 4, verse 10, what is it showing you? This is how he responds. This is how he responds. So we're going to look at those two 
two scenes, if you will. And then putting all this together, we'll try to ask together, okay, what does this mean for me here August 8, 2021, Fountain Valley, California? What does this mean for me? Because if all you do is go home thinking, wow, that was, that, was a, that was a cute story. I failed, okay? And, and, we'll, and, and instead of remembering that this is the word of God, profitable, we'll think of it as just kind of like, oh, that was like a, a Hallmark movie. We don't want to do that. So let's dive in. Let's see. Okay. I'm not going to reread the whole text for you. I'm going I'm to pick out highlights. Verses, not, verses 1 and 9, you see Naomi and Ruth take a huge risk by proposing to Boaz that he be Ruth's redeemer. So notice just verse 1, Naomi's goal is provision for Ruth. And, and this is just an amazing scene if you've been following along with us. Remember, Naomi was so bitter, hardly thankful to Ruth at all for all her love, hardly acknowledging her. But Ruth has loved Naomi so steadfastly. We saw that chapter one, chapter two, so steadfastly. And then as Naomi has been receiving this committed love from Ruth, Naomi begins to change. And by the beginning of chapter three, she's no longer just bitter. She's able to praise God for his faithfulness. And now she starts to think of someone else other than herself. Don't we need that sometimes in bitterness? Hey, lift your chin, right? Let's love one another in bitterness. And let's remember that the way out sometimes, keep loving, keep loving. So Naomi wants to provide for Ruth. That's her goal. She comes up with a plan. And here's her plan. She's realized that Boaz, this worthy, generous man, he's actually a relative who could be, could be the redeemer. And so, you know, she's a mother-in-law, right? I'm, I'm guessing, right? And so she's coming up with a plan. How, how are we, we going to roll this? We know he's a man of worthy character. He's a redeemer by relation. For several weeks now, he's continued to provide generously and let them glean, but, but nothing more has happened. So Naomi decides, you know, let's move the bus along, right? Here's the plan. In this plan, Naomi wants Ruth to encounter Boaz happy and not busy, not stressed out. In this plan, Naomi wants Ruth to encounter Boaz alone. Singapore Moabitess asking a, a, a prominent Israelite leader, let's do this alone, okay? Number three, Naomi wants Ruth to be inviting. Uh, those ideas of anoint yourself, put on, put on the cloak, get gussied up, okay? And she's hoping Boaz will get the point. And, you know, as you, as you heard the plan, how did you feel about it? Is this a plan you would recommend to your daughter, for instance? Not me, okay? No, in fact, I suspect that as readers, the narrator intends that as you hear about the plan, you should be somewhat concerned, okay? Commentators say Naomi's language here is a little ambiguous and perhaps suggestive. Moreover, in the context of the book, the plan seems dangerous. Remember, it's the time of the judges, and we've had all these warnings about, hey, be careful, single young women, about where you go to glean, Things are corrupt. You can't trust everyone. And so now the plan is go in the middle of the night now to where all the young fellas are sleeping after a hard day's work by yourself. Moreover, uh, you know, she said, make sure you see where Boaz lies down because we don't want you pulling up the wrong, the wrong guy's blanket 
So mark, mark this out ahead of time. And then, and then the last part of the advice, uncover his feet. The idea is that the cold will wake him up. And when he wakes up because he's cold, there you are. And then Naomi says, just do what he tells you. It seems a bit rash. It's dangerous for Ruth's reputation. You remember where Ruth comes from? She's a Moabitess. If you know your Old Testament, Moabite deservingly, Moab deservingly suffers from a bad reputation as a people. They are seducers. That's the, that's the Old Testament context there. And what about Boaz's character? Commentators say that being alone on the, on the threshing floor has, has connotation. So we're, we're, our eyebrows are raised. And so we read of, of Ruth going through with it. She's, she's a, a submissive daughter-in-law, and we don't, we don't know much of what's going through her mind, but we feel the tension. She, obviously, she's been there before gleaning. She's no stranger to the property, so she watches, and she waits. Okay, that's where he's sleeping. And then the time comes. You can imagine her quietly sneaking up, getting her spot, moving the blanket off his feet, and then she's laying there, and... I really like Ruth. I imagine her there in total anguish. Total anguish. I think she's horribly nervous, and I think she feels very inappropriate. I think that's evident in the context. So she's laying there, and sure enough, Boaz gets cold and wakes up, and he turns over and sees a woman laying next to him. And so I think he had a lot of self-control because all he did was say, who are you? Who are you? Obviously, that question is laden with many other questions. Who are you? And poor Ruth, right? Her directions from Naomi ended right there. When he wakes up, do what he tells you. Her directions ended right there. Well, what did he tell you to do? Well, Tell you his name, <laughs> or tell you, tell him your name, right? Anyway, I love this, I love Ruth for this, because look what she says. She makes things very clear, very quickly. She speaks out of the context of their prior relationship. Do you remember back when Boaz encountered Ruth, he, and he knew about her love for God and her love for Naomi? Look what, what Boaz said to her in Ruth 2.12. Boaz had said to her, the Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. God is her redeemer. And so she's taking refuge in him and he prayed for her there. May he continue to bless you as you are faithful to him. It's beautiful. And what Ruth says here in this moment is an echo of what he had said the chapter before. Look what Ruth says in Ruth 3.9. Boaz says, who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. She is saying, show me the Lord's love in putting me under his wings by putting me under yours. Redeem like God redeems. Be the answer to your own prayer, she's saying. Buy back the family property, she's saying. Be the redeemer. Buy us out of hopelessness. Be the redeemer. Provide a future for my mother-in-law. Be the redeemer and take me as your wife. 
be the redeemer. But she made it very clear, didn't she? This is not a one-night stand. It's not what this is. This is a request for a covenantal commitment long-term over great cost. It's a huge request. And so now we sit here thinking, what will Boaz do? He has all the power in this moment. He has all the power in this moment. What will he do? And that's the question of this chapter. That is the question of this episode. How will Boaz respond when Ruth risks everything to ask that he would redeem her? And we get to see his response, and it makes readers very happy. It makes us very, very happy because you are going to see the response of a worthy man. And the theme is going to be again and again in every way, Boaz redeems willingly. He redeems willingly. And I think I want to show you three aspects to this. Number one, Boaz redeems with dignity. He redeems with dignity. There she is in the darkness in this strange, awkward setting. And she says what she said. And he says in verse 10, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. There in the darkness, Boaz prays for her again. And I love this about Boaz, because listen up. His explicit reliance on the God of the Bible we saw in the daylight of chapter 2 remains strong here in the secret darkness of chapter 3. He is a worthy man in the light. He is a worthy man at night. Mm. He's a man of character. He calls her my daughter. That would comfort her concerns, help her to feel safe. He expresses humility. He says, you could have gone after those young, good-looking guys. And then he says he appreciates her steadfast love for him. This was your kindness, your first chesed, remember, steadfast love. Your first kindness was your commitment to Naomi. And now your kindness is to ask me to be your redeemer. He shows humility, and not only that, he offers protection. He says, do not fear. That is what she needed to hear right there. He said, do not fear me or this moment. And then he says, we all know you are a worthy woman. Boaz protects Ruth's dignity and reputation. In fact, in verse 14, he made sure others did as well. He redeems her with dignity. I think that'll preach a little. Do you think that'll preach? What do worthy men do? They protect the dignity of women, especially when the woman is vulnerable. And they do so with an explicit reliance on the God of the Bible. They do so in the light when things are public, and they do so in the night when things are secret. Somebody want to give me an amen on that? Okay. So, fellas, we have to ask, as we look at Boaz, is that us? Is that you here this morning? In your thoughts, in your attitudes, in your talk, in your habits, 
in your media? Do you protect the dignity of these women made in the image of God? If you're squirming on the inside right now, praise the Lord because he's kind. I dare you to get help. To talk to another brother. Talk to me. I will, we will protect one another's reputation. But in this hypersexualized culture, Christian men need to be different. Godly men, worthy men will be different. It's also worth noting, I think, the nature of Boaz and Ruth's relationship. I mean, there's no question this is a love story, right? But it's a love story of the sort our culture almost cannot even understand. It can't even understand. In our day, how do you know if you love someone? Well, primarily there's a physical attraction and a romantic relational elation. It's got to thrill you physically and emotionally, right? And then you've, you've got to try each other out before you commit. Isn't that kind of what the culture feeds us? And then, this is like a different language to us because it's totally different. This is an attraction of godly character. It's an attraction of godly character. There's nothing about Boaz being young and ruddy-cheeked like David or something. There's, there's nothing about Ruth being gorgeous like uh, the wives of the patriarchs. Hebrew narrators can tell you these things if they want to. It's not here. In fact, Boaz says, I'm old. Ruth is thinking, I'm a Moabitess. But they have one thing in common. They love the God of Israel, and they are blown away, blown away by one another's character. Character. Can you imagine making the major design of what you desire in a spouse being young? Uh, no, Character. Wow. You know, I learned this week, I won't go into it for very long, but you know, in some Hebrew Bibles, Ruth follows Proverbs. And so if you read the end of Proverbs 31, you'll say, um, charm is deceitful, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord, she'll be praised. That's the kind of wife we want, a woman who fears the Lord. And then it says, let her works praise her in the gates. So, so the people will note the reputation of a godly woman who, like Ruth, is just full of steadfast love. She is industrious and committed love for other people, okay? Amazingly, you know, back up in Ruth 3.11, when Boaz says, all the, what do you say, all the townsmen know you're a worthy woman. In Hebrew, it doesn't say all the townsmen. It says the whole gate knows you're a worthy woman. Proverbs 31, let her works praise her in the gate, Boaz, the gate praises you. She's a picture. The Moabitess is a picture. This godly woman, because of her devotion to the Lord and the character that comes from it. Wow. If you're single and hoping to be married, let this text encourage you. This is in the time of the judges, right? Nobody loves God anymore. There aren't good people out there anymore. Yes, there are. Love the Lord and be a man or a woman of character and trust God to bring along one as well. No promises, but God honors people who delight in his character. But don't you see, Boaz redeems with dignity, such dignity, and he stands out for it. Second, Boaz redeems with a generous commitment. 
Verse 12, he says, it's true, I'm a redeemer, yet there's a redeemer nearer than I. You know, Ruth's heart just went, oh, here it was, oh. But Boaz says in verse 13, remain tonight in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, I love these words. Here's Boaz. As the Lord lives, I will redeem you. He's committed, isn't he? He's committed. Uh, He swears by the Lord. First thing, I redeem you. Do you see any hesitancy? Hey, will you be my redeemer? uh, Let me check the budget. I, I got I to gotta ask my relatives what they think about a Mo. You know, I hope you're not offended, but a Moabitess, let me check. Yeah. This whole thing at the threshing floor, I'm not sure. Do you see any hesitation in him? What does he say? As the Lord lives, tomorrow morning, 6 a.m., as far as it's up to me, done. He's committed. And it's a generous commitment. Did you notice that before she leaves, he... Uh, Measure, he takes her cloak and he measures out six measures of barley and puts it on her. Now, first of all, we notice he says, you can't go, you can't go home to your mother-in-law empty-handed. What does that mean? It's a sign of his commitment, right? And it's a generous sign of his commitment. Supposedly, commentators say this could be between 60 and 90 pounds of grain. Muscle up, sister, right? And, and he, even has to, like, he even has to like help her, you know, load it on the shoulders because he's just like... <gasps> But listen, we're reading a Hebrew narrative here. How many measures of grain? Six. Why six? Hmm. Well, we went through Revelation together. We know six means incomplete. It's the promise of more coming. And friends, I hope this is okay, but I think Ruth uh, blushed when he gave her six and not seven. Because he is saying, the seventh gift of seed, Lord willing, will be the child I give you after we're married. I'm marrying you in as far as it's up to me. That's what he says. With a generous commitment. Wow. Wow. He redeems with dignity, with a generous commitment. He also redeems with a readiness to pay the cost. So by 16, Ruth heads home. Naomi's like, how'd it go? And she's like, listen to what Boaz said. And Naomi's like, that that wasn't in the Hebrew. You know, that's, he's going to get it done today, sister. And so then we get to watch these ladies fade out of the background. Now we get to watch Boaz do his work. So the beginning of chapter four, right? Some people split this up when they preach it. I was like, I can't do that. I can't stop. Let's go to, let's, let's see what he does. He goes to the gate. The gate's where the important people meet. That's where they discuss. That's where arrangements are made. That's where the witnesses see it. He goes to the gate. He gets the witnesses he needs, and he's waiting for, the Hebrew puts it, Mr. So-and-so. This other redeemer doesn't get a name. He's Mr. Could be the redeemer, okay? He waits for that brother to come along. Hey, brother, come along. Let's talk. And I'll sum this up for you the way he puts it first. It seems like to this brother, is your lucky day free field. You want to be the redeemer? Here's what you need to do. You need to commit to provide for the needs of Naomi. But that's not so bad, right? Because she's a widow and she's elderly. No kids, just provide for her. And if you provide for her, you get the field. And so what's the first redeemer say when he hears that deal? Why not? Sure. And then tension, drum roll, 
Boaz says in chapter 4, verse 5, one more thing. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. You see that role of redeemer right there that God provided? And now Mr. So-and-so says, oh, take on a Moabite wife and give her children and provide for all of them, then lose the property when they're grown because it's theirs? And what does he say? He basically says, verse 6, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. I cannot afford it. The cost is too high. It's too high. That's why he won't take it. It's too expensive. It's too difficult. I cannot pay this cost. And then Boaz stands up, and we heard the story, takes off his sandal. And what does he say? I will pay that cost gladly. I will readily pay that cost. Your witnesses. I take the field. I take Naomi. I take Ruth. I take responsibility to do my best to give her children and give that field to her children so the line of the clan of Elimelech is not wiped out from the people, but it remains. I'll pay the cost to redeem. If we were watching the movie, happy music plays, we're feeling, you know, we're like, wow, you know, so great. He did it. We're happy. It's the happiest of endings. Remember how this started. It was bitter. Naomi lost everything. She has nothing. She's bitter. This loyal, stubborn Moabitess comes out of nowhere and commits to God and to her, and their situation's hopeless. But somehow, it just so happens, they have a redeemer who's worthy, and he's willing to pay the cost, and now they have a hope and a future. Because how did Boaz re respond to Ruth's risks? How did he respond? He redeemed willingly. So we've taken this in, and now we ask, what are we to do with this? What are you to do with this? Well, there's some ground floor lessons, right? We saw them. Isn't, there, isn't it something to celebrate accounts of God's work in providing for others that gives you faith that he still provides in the nitty-gritty today? That's a biblical thing. Look at the legacy of what God has done and know he's still acting today. In fact, of times of bitterness, hopelessness, bitter times, bitter circumstances, bitter regret even, God still acts for his people. Man, we also hear the call, don't we, to worthy character. In the time of the judges when Israel was a mess, there's men and women of godly character. And so what should I say to you? What should I say to you? Should we end right here and say amen? You're like, oh, I hope so. It's kind of long already. End right here and say amen. And I'll just say, hey, you guys, trust that God will provide, and uh, you better be people of character. Go get them. If I did that, I would mispreach this passage. I would mispreach this passage. First of all, I'm not going to give you a promise that every bad situation in your life is going to work out. I can't give you that promise. I'd be a liar if I gave you that promise. Now, has God provided for us in a million ways over and over again? Yes! But I can't promise everything will work out. Moreover, 
Some of you, I hope, are feeling uneasy because you're like, I haven't been a person of worthy character. And all of us should be uneasy because we have not been people of worthy character, especially when it comes to God's standard. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength every time, every way. Love your neighbor as yourself and do so in the way God has demanded in his word. There's a psalm that says, oh Lord, if you, could count, if you would count iniquities, O oh Lord, who could stand? And the answer is, if God counted our iniquities against us, who could stand? No one. There's a debt I owe to a holy God. There's a debt I can't pay. And let's be honest, even in the context of the, this book, and we're going to go into it in great detail next week, this book is about far more than just Ruth and Naomi. Uh, did you wonder why the, the end of chapter four is just genealogies replayed? You're like, really? That's the way you're going to end the movie? Genealogies? And it's working really hard to get you to David. It tells you twice. Ruth and Boaz, uh, David, David. And then we remember how Judges ended. The reason the people were a mess. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then at the end of, the, at the end of this book, Ruth, we get David, David. There's going to be a king who has some worthy character. He's a man after God's own heart in a certain way. But, but even he will fall. And even Israel, let's go on, hundreds and hundreds of years. Even Israel falls. Judah falls. They rebel against God and his ways and his words, and they're corrupted, and they're broken. They're unworthy. It's, it's all, all is lost. Go back to Isaiah 59, verse 20. Again, in the bitterness when all seems lost, Isaiah 59, verse 20, God promised. What did he promise? A redeemer will come to Zion. A redeemer will come to those in Jacob who turn from their transgressions. The redeemer will come. So I ask you again, do you need a redeemer? Do you need the Redeemer. I do. Who is he? Has he come? This is why we meet here every Sunday morning. This is what we're celebrating and singing about. The Redeemer has come. And it's the great, 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 I don't know how many greats, grandson of Ruth and Boaz. And his name is Jesus. He's come. He's the ultimate redeemer. And so I ask you, in context of this passage, seen in the light of the whole Bible, what would happen if you took the risk to trust yourself to Jesus Christ completely? What would happen if you said, I'm going to land my whole hope and future and meaning and lifestyle, my, my forgiveness my being made right with God, I'm going to put that all on Jesus Christ to be my redeemer. What would happen if you took that risk? Because let's be honest, it feels like a risk, doesn't it? If you're not a Christian thinking about being a Christian, you're thinking, oh, all, all the costs of trusting Christ. Or even, listen, for every one of us, don't you have aspects in your life you still really haven't submitted to the Lord? You know, good and well what his word says, and you're like, yeah, but I got reasons. Could you come to him again? 
could you trust and submit to him again? Or maybe you're, maybe you're just feeling condemned and guilty and you're like, I've messed this up too many times. He can't love me anymore. What if you took the risk of coming to Jesus by his grace through faith in him? What would his response be? Would he receive you? It was amazing for Boaz to receive Ruth, but the distance for us is even greater. Jesus is perfect, and we are sinful. What would he say if you were like, will you spread the corner of your robe over my life? And you know what the example of Boaz shows us? He shows us how the ultimate Boaz responds when people trust him as their redeemer. Jesus is the ultimate Boaz. Remember how Boaz redeemed Ruth with dignity? He spoke well and to of her. He protected her. He prayed for her. Friends, look at Romans 8.33. If you put your faith in Christ, this is Jesus' response to you. Romans 8.33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? I have a lot of things that could bring charge against me. You guys could do it. Matt, you stunk. You messed this up. And sometimes I'm like, yeah, I could bring a charge against myself. I, I mess that up. It's true. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? Those he's chosen. It is God who justifies. Let's remember that sweet spot of the gospel. What's it mean to be justified? According to the legacy of your actual thoughts, words, deeds, and motives, before a holy God, you are guilty. But when you put your faith in Christ, that book is removed and Christ's book takes your place. And God's definitive conclusion about you is now righteous. And if God says I'm righteous, y'all can say whatever you want to say. Guess what I am? I'm righteous. Who is the one to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that who was raised who is at the right hand of God, is interceding for us. Father, look to what I've done instead of this one I've redeemed. And friends, this is by faith alone. You like that last word, alone? This is by faith alone. It's not faith plus once I get my life together, then Jesus will, will receive me. Okay, when's that gonna happen? It's faith alone. He will receive you as you are. He speaks well of you. He protects you. He prays for you. You remember how Boaz redeemed with a generous commitment. Oh, I, there's so many texts to consider for this, but look at 2 Corinthians 1, 19. Jesus redeems with a generous commitment. The apostle writes here, 2 Corinthians 1, 19, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, that's what I'm trying to do right now, proclaimed among you. He's not yes and no, Jesus, my friends, is not a flake. He, he does not sometimes commit and then quit when it's too hard. He doesn't say, oh, I forgot, and then I, I messed that up. Let me go back. No, 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 no. If you're in him, it's always yes. And then Paul drops this on you. Verse 20, all the promises of God. Genesis to Revelation, all the promises of God find their Yes, in him. God, is that promise that you gave, rightly understood, of course, 
for me? And the question comes back, do you trust Jesus? Yes. What's the answer? Yes. Yes. All the promises of God find their yes in him. What a commitment. This is why it's through him that we utter our our amen to God for his glory. Why do we say amen at the end of the prayer? God, because you said all your promises are yes in Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What about the, the down payment? Verse 21, it is God who, verse 22, has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a what? A guarantee, just as Boaz loaded Ruth up with six servings of grain, so Jesus has said, receive the Holy Spirit. The presence of the third person of the Trinity in and with all who trust Christ to draw us to him, to cause us to long for his word, to value the cross and what Jesus has done for us, to move us towards him, to trust him, to comfort us, If you're feeling that longing, Lord, love me. I love you if you're feeling that. That's the Holy Spirit, and that's Jesus' promise to you that he will surely finish what he is committed to. He will surely do it. Jesus redeems with dignity. Jesus redeems with a generous commitment. I'll finish with this one. Was Jesus ready to pay the cost? Was he ready? Which of you would pay the cost Jesus paid for one of us? First of all, you couldn't. Secondly, we we wouldn't want to. Think of the cost Jesus paid. You know, there's these nuggets in the Gospels and one in Luke. uh, When Jesus knew it was time, he set his face towards Jerusalem. I love that little verse. I love that little verse. Why why is it so great? Because he knew what was coming in Jerusalem, right? What's coming? Betrayal. Arrest, torture, crucifixion, the wrath of a holy God on him instead of sinners who deserved it. He knew it was coming, and where did he go? Jerusalem. As Boaz went to the gate, Jesus was taken outside the gate. And what was Jesus' heart in this? The author of Hebrews tells us to look. Look at Hebrews 12 too. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And here's what I want you to see. Who for the, what? For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Friends, part of that joy that joy that motivated Jesus to readily pay the cost, that joy was him redeeming you. He was ready to pay the cost. He knew exactly what the cost would be. He walked in with eyes open to pay that cost. The more I meditate on this passage, the more I'm sure the words of Boaz to Ruth are the words of Christ to his people. Boaz had said, do not fear as the Lord lives I will redeem you. And Jesus says to all who trust in him today, do not fear. As the Lord lives, so I will redeem you. You look to Christ today. 
That's what you're supposed to do with this passage. You trust Christ today. That's what you're supposed to do with this passage. And then because you trust him, yeah, you will grow in pursuing godly character. As you trust him, you will grow in showing steadfast love. As you trust him, you know he will meet your every need, whether it's easy or difficult in any time or space, because you know, you know, you know who the redeemer is. You're his, and he's yours. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for this incredible story, its encouragements. Most of all, we thank you for Jesus Christ, without whom this story has no benefit to us. We thank you that Jesus lived the perfect life in our place, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead, and that all who trust in him are reconciled to you, are made right with you because we have the Redeemer, the one to whom the whole Bible points, Jesus Christ. Strengthen us, Lord, as we look to him. Save us from our sin. Win us to yourself. Be the guiding light of our lives. Move us to integrity. Move us to steadfast love because we know Jesus has redeemed us. We pray all this for his glory and our joy in him. Everybody said, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.